What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's a new year, and I have a new podcast here at The Ringer, Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi. Austin and I go way back and talk so much hoop already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on all of these conversations. Every week, Pasha and I will hit on the biggest stories happening in the league and get Austin's perspective of someone currently hooping in the NBA. Tap into Off Guard every Friday on The Ringer NBA Show feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett recording late on a Tuesday night after the Celtics, at least for one game, avoid elimination. Now 3-1 in favor of the Miami Heat. The Celtics, though, they do pick up a win in game four. Joining us now from the Ringer NBA show from group chat, it is Justin Verrier. Verrier, what's going on, man? I, I Well, first, let me say this. I was going back and forth yesterday when I asked you to hop on. I'm like, this would be the funeral episode for the Celtics. They did at least avoid elimination, man. We're talking about a win. I know. Instead, we just have the town queued up on all of our screens. We got the Dropkick <laughs> Murphys playing. Should we bust out the the pink socks hats just to, to make the rally uh, full bore here? Well, well, it's funny you mentioned that. Well, first of all, I think I'm out on the town now after hearing Missoula talk about. <laughs> and out of all the Boston movies, I like the town. I think the town's a phenomenal movie. It's one of those movies that if it comes on like one at like if it comes on HBO or if it comes on TNT, like I'll watch it. It's one of those movies, kind of like the Fast and the Furious. Like, okay, it's entertaining at least, right? There's a lot of action involved. But if you're really going to pick like a Boston movie, you'd think you'd be like Goodwill Hunting, right? Like something along mm-hmm. those lines. Like the, it, the fact that he picks the town, it's just bizarre in and of itself. So I may be out on the town if the Celtics end up not being able to pull off this comeback. But the other thing is you mentioned the pink hats, the Red Sox. This was unbelievable. And the boss, Bill Simmons, tweeted this out. A-Rod and Derek Jeter were both at the game. I understand oh, no. like I understand Jeter being there because I think he lives in Miami now, right? Or at least he has a place there. And A-Rod's there. He brings over Anthony Edwards, of course, because A-Rod's now one of the owners of the Minnesota Timberwolves. And so he's there with his star player, Anthony Edwards. But you can't have two guys from the Yankees that blew a 3-0 series lead. That was just... Not a good idea from the Miami Heat, so I kind of like that. I'm, I'm wondering if the Seas can fly those guys, not that they need the money, but fly them into the garden for Thursday night. Or at least my guess will be this very, or like you'll see some of the old Red Sox, like 
Maybe David Ortiz will be there for game five. Maybe Kevin Millar will be there for game five. Hey, if Millar is there, I'd much rather have Millar be at a Celtics game than call games on Nesson for the Red Sox because that has not been entertaining when he calls those games. But man, it is weird to see both those guys in the building. Where's Uke? Can we, can we get him out there? Like, I, I also have like a, a Papelbon jersey somewhere, I think, that I still own. <laughs> like, do you think I could break that out and, and show up and they'll welcome me with open arms? Yeah, I think so. I think Uke may be available because I believe he's off this series. The Red Sox are playing the Angels, and I believe it's Will Middlebrooks that's doing the games for Nesson for this series. Uke was on the last game, so Uke may be available. Maybe Uke will be in the building, but hey, let's get to the actual game because before we get into some of the things that needed to change for the Celtics that did, the biggest thing to me about this game is your best player played like the best player in the series because for the majority of the series, the best player has been Jimmy Butler, and you can make an argument that the second best player has been Kayla Martin or Bam. Like those have been the three best players in the series. And finally, we got a signature Tatum game. And it didn't look that way early because first couple of minutes of the game, first eight minutes, Tatum has three turnovers. And you're thinking to yourself, OK, here we go again. More issues as it pertains to turnovers with your star players, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. But in that third quarter, he had the 14 points and really took command of the game. I thought the Tatum was flat out outstanding. And this has sort of become a thing with them. Like we've seen a lot of stinkers from Tatum in the postseason, but you think back to 46 against Milwaukee, Philadelphia, he doesn't come alive until the final three minutes of that game six, but then he has the outstanding game seven with the 51 points. So, and look, he's still going to do it three more times in order for the Celtics to have a chance or to win this series. But it was a really big-time performance from Tatum. I mean, clear, clearly there would have been a totally different narrative after this game if he continued the way he started. Yeah, this is kind of what I think everyone expected to happen in this series, in this game, where it wasn't particularly buttoned up, as you referenced. I think Tatum had two turnovers like within the first couple seconds there, and you're saying to yourself, oh, no, here we go again. But the threes start falling, one, which I thought was a big deal, and also, you saw how the success that they did have started to snowball, in particular with Tatum. It always seems like, I don't want to call him a front runner, but he definitely plays with more of a head of steam after he has some success, after the ball kind of goes through the net. And you saw how that had a trickle-down effect. They were getting the ball into the paint. He was being more aggressive. It seemed like Brown, in particular, nothing was going right with his shot. Uh, once again, was had a poor performance from three. But at the very least, he made some efforts to play make, and you just saw things open up from there, and you get a performance that you expect from your star player. When you have Tatum being the star that I think everyone expected, things are going to go much better for you if you're the Celtics. Yeah, and what we saw is I felt like, to your point, Verrier, everything revolved around Tatum. So right at the beginning of that third quarter, he hits the two wing threes, and then he goes by Struess and hits a floater. And then after that, it felt like everything opened up for this offense, right, where he gets double defined smart for a wide open three, where that was great to see because smart hadn't been able to hit shit in this series. Same thing goes for Brogdon. Now, smart did hit three threes in the second half. Brogdon still, he was one for five in this game. And for a guy that was really good at times in the Philly series and the Atlanta series, he's been an issue for this team. But then he's double defines Grant for a three. And he found Grant for another three. He found Smart for an open three. Like all this stuff is happening off Jason Tatum and him taking on the double teams. And that's why he finishes with 34, 11 and seven in this game. So I do think it's so imperative that Tatum continues to get downhill, because if you go back to that game, one of the series, he had 23 points off of his drives. Right. When the heat were then they changed up their coverages a little bit. 
But it just feels like from a Celtics perspective, when Tatum is getting downhill, and to a lesser extent, Jalen Brown, because I get scared every time he dribbles more than like three times. But if Tatum can get into the paint, it just starts to open everything up. And not just in for himself as well, because then he can get to that step back game where he's getting the mismatches. So I think that's the big thing going forward is, and I know they like to have other guys try to play make, but Tatum is really, this is the one thing that I've noticed in this series where it's kind of been exposed. He's the only guy on this team that can drive and score and drive and kick. Like White's okay with it, but you don't want a healthy dose of this. Smart really doesn't go by anybody any, anymore. He's a decent passer, a really good passer, but he's not a finisher when he gets in the lane. Jalen Brown is just an absolutely atrocious passer. And Brogdon, he can drive, but he sort of gets blinders on. So I do think they have to continue to just do everything really around Tatum. I think that's really their best hope at making plays and getting guys open opportunities because today we saw the big difference in the game is the three-point shooting. Yeah, I mean, and this is kind of what the Heat have exploited, not only this entire series, but probably this entire playoffs. If you have two teams in the Bucks and the Celtics who want to go without perhaps a traditional pass-first point guard or someone to be the designated playmaker who isn't your best wing scorer, in the Bucks' case, Giannis, uh, they're just going to muck it up and make everything harder on those guys and almost reveal that. Uh, and I feel like up until this point, they've done a good job of revealing how much Brogdon is more of a shoot first sort of guy. You don't really want White to orchestrate for you. And so you're looking around like, who is that guy? Well, it has to be Tatum. And the seven assists, I think, are the one thing that jump out to me for him. It's just like you could see how everything just kind of unfolds off of him in the same way. Honestly, it's worked for the Heat all playoffs where Jimmy Butler, as the attention has grown, he's finding guys in ways that like, I don't know if Jimmy Butler has done throughout his career. I think he's a little bit more versed in it than even some of the Celtics wings, but that is the next evolution you start to see with some of these veteran score first wings, Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler, Tatum to a certain extent. You need to be able to transition, especially in the postseason, to the the designated playmaker uh, score, whatever your, your team needs. And Tatum hasn't been that a lot this series, but he was tonight. And I think that made the difference. Yeah. And I don't want to nitpick because they won the game. <laughs> They're still down three to one, though. But I cannot figure this out for the life of me, Barrier. I watched pretty much the entirety of that Nuggets-Lakers game. I had the Red Sox, I had the two screens going. I had the Red Sox and I had the Nuggets-Lakers game. And I looked up the numbers on LeBron in that game. He sat for like three seconds. OK, and he came mm. out at the very end of the second quarter. So what I cannot comprehend from Joe Missoula, there's... The start of the fourth quarter, Tatum just has this brilliant third quarter. You know, whenever Tatum goes to the bench, the entire series, Eric Spolster does the same thing. He goes to his own. Every single time when Tatum's out of the game, he goes to his own. First of all, this is a do or die. Now, they won the game. It's great. Like, they advanced to uh, game five at the Garden on Thursday night, although maybe that's not the best thing that it's at the Garden because they've been losing most of their games at the Garden this postseason. But my point being is, first of all, I disagree with resting Tatum there. He's 25. LeBron's 38, and he's almost going the distance last night. And I felt like we saw that moment in the first quarter where he took him out. It looked like Tatum was pissed about that, that he took Tatum off the court. He didn't even, like, dap anybody up on the sidelines. He just went to his seat, which I thought was interesting because I do think that there's been some interesting dynamics over the past few days with Tatum and Missoula. I don't think that Tatum was incredibly thrilled with Rob being taken out of the starting lineup. He praises Rob all the time. I thought that was weird. But just going back to this point, so I hated that he was out at the beginning of the fourth. And then secondarily, if Tatum isn't going to be on the court, 
Horford was on the court, but Smart has to be out there too. If you're going to go, if they're going to play a zone, which you know is coming, they do it every time, Smart's the second best passer on the team. So you have a bunch of guys out there that aren't great passers, with the exception of Horford at the five position, who again is your five man. I just don't understand how Joe Missoula can come out with that lineup to begin the fourth quarter. It's so perplexing to me. Yeah, especially once he put Tatum back in, you saw what he could do just kind of flashing to the free throw line and everything yeah. seemed to work as soon as he he got back in. But Wing jumper on, right away. I know, automatically. <laughs> on the other hand, Joe Missoula called some timeouts. Yes. I clocked at least two in which afterward the ATO looked pretty precise. One in which Derek White, corner three, beautiful play, right? Like uh, So as much as we could ding Joe Missoula... He, he is calling the timeouts now, so we're slowly but surely, perhaps, by the end of this series, going to get to the point where maybe he's a fully functional coach. Well, it's amazing. He's finally, he's figured out that you can actually use these timeouts throughout the game. And I hated the other game. What was it? Game two, when they're down five late. It, well, six late. It's 111-105. They're not going to win the game, but he doesn't use the timeout. He just gave up on the game. That really irritated me. Maybe I was just, maybe I exaggerated, but I was really mad when he did that. But just getting to the threes in this series. So up until tonight, the Heat had hit 44 of 92 threes, 47.8%. The Celtics were 31 of 106, 29.2%. So they had outscored, the Heat had outscored the Celtics by 39 points in the series, which as uh, Sean Grady, the play-by-play guy, the Celtics pointed out to me, that's actually the margin of the difference in the series up until tonight's game was 39 points and it, they were outscored by 39 to the three-point line. You look at tonight, Celtics 19 of 45, 42.2%. The Heat, 8 of 32, 25%. So, of course, that's a 33-point advantage for the Cs. You had five from Tatum, Al hit three, Smart hit three, White hit three, and Grant, which I want to get to him in a second here, Grant hit four. But the Celtics were not hitting any of their wide-open threes, right, which is by NBA.com's metric on it. It's at least the defenders at least six six feet away. They were 32.6% and the heat had been 58.8%. But one of the other things I looked at is the corner threes. They were generating better threes because they were driving, right? They took 17 corner threes prior to tonight, seven, four, and 10. And this is sort of a flaw with the Heat's defense that the Celtics haven't been able to expose up until this game tonight. The Heat actually during the regular season gave up the most corner three-point attempts per game. During the postseason prior to this series, they were giving up the most corner three-point attempts per game. So I think what was happening is it was twofold, right? The zone was screwing them up. Tatum and Brown were dealing with turnovers. And to our point earlier about the lack of a really good playmaker besides Tatum, they weren't making the correct reads and finding those guys. Because if you can penetrate against the Heat, those corner threes are going to be open. So I do wonder if the Celtics... Whatever it was, if they found something, because it did feel like they were getting to the basket more than they have throughout this series. Yeah, and it's honestly something that surprised me throughout this series, because the recipe for the Celtics has always been to outshoot their opponent from the three-point line. We've seen the statistics by this point about like if they shoot X amount of threes, then they win. If they, if they don't, then they don't. Um, and the Heat have put so much pressure on their opponents throughout this playoffs by installing some of these three-point shooters and really like letting it fly to the point where Duncan Robinson seemed like he was basically out of the league at a certain point. He's getting spot yeah. minutes, if only to shoot these threes and to continue to close the margin on some of the other things you'd expect would catch up to the heat. I don't know what happened. Maybe it was as simple as they were driving to the paint and these guys were open, but it also seemed like a conscious effort where they're... And 
I, I, I'm a little surprised it's taken them this long to. They have all of these three-point shooters, and why not just trust that these are the guys that go, are going to be able to provide the margin? Like, if you can't do some of the things we talked about before, the playmaking, why not just let it fly and hope that you could just total enough in order to ultimately, like, collapse on the heat? Yeah, I'm with you, man. And I just think that this team, it's been clearly evident all season. They depend on the three. If they shoot more than 40% from three, Tim Bontemps from ESPN has the stat. They've lost two games all season long when they shoot 40% from three. And we saw that happening at tonight. And coincidentally or not coincidentally, they won the game. But one of the other big things I thought from this game is, and really throughout the series, and I know that some Celtics fans were upset that Grant Williams got into it with Jimmy Butler. I didn't have an issue with it very at all. I thought, quite frankly, like the fact that they didn't rally around Grant when he was actually sticking up to Jimmy Butler was kind of pathetic <laughs> by the rest of the Celtics. But yeah. I feel like he's been giving them good minutes. And in tonight's game, he hits four of his six threes and a lot of them are open. But he's going to get those shots when he's playing with guys like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And tonight he knocks down four of six. He had some really nice plays where he blocked Jimmy Butler, where Jimmy Butler was just in front of him. He tried to like shoot a jump shot over him, and Grant just stepped up and blocked that shot. And I do feel like Grant is a big part of, if the Celtics are going to turn this around and extend it to a game six, Grant's got to be a big part of the equation, which makes me even more confused that Peyton Pritchard played in game one and Grant didn't. And the whole season for Grant Verrier has been just a weird thing, where he was just completely taken out of the rotation, where I felt like last year... A lot of teams would want this guy in their playoff rotation. Like, think about what the Phoenix Suns would do for a guy like Grant Williams, a guy that can defend and hit threes, and he's a versatile defender. And I know that he annoys guys on the team. I totally understand that. He annoys the opponent, too. So I hope that going forward, we continue to see this version of Grant because it does feel like he's one of the only guys on the team that actually brings some edge. I feel like Smart's edginess is kind of fake. Like, he just kind of bitches to the officials and he does all that flopping stuff like the flop that he had in the last game where he just went into Kyle Lowry when Kyle Lowry is running up the court was just completely irritating to me. But I felt like Grant really all series long, he's been one of their best or most consistent guys in terms of the effort and what he's bringing on the defensive. And I don't even blame him for what Butler did in that game, too. I mean, those were tough shots that Butler was hitting. It wasn't like he was going right by him. He's hitting like mid-rangers over him. Yeah, it's funny that the Celtics have so many two-way players who can shoot and defend that they couldn't even find minutes for Grant in this series and at times during the season. It just shows like the bounty of the exact type of player every team wants that they didn't get this guy on the court. But I agree with you. I, I think his edge, to your point earlier, like it definitely can go the other way. Um I, my issue with him earlier in the series when he got into it with Butler is more that Maz didn't pull him sooner as uh, clearly Butler was kind of taking him to the woodshed. Yeah. I thought that was another Missoula issue more than a Grant issue because this is what Grant does. He's going to mix it up and in the right situation, it is going to provide you with a little bit of spark. I also like that Williams, uh, Grant, and, Grant Williams and Bam Adebayo have a little bit of a history dating back to high school. And so yeah. I, like <laughs> you would have to assume that he knows uh, certain things that might come to advantage or at the very least, he could fuck with Bam on, on certain plays or say things to him <laughs> that might provide a uh, a bit of an edge and so I'm glad he's out there I'm glad he's contributing because I, I have a high opinion of his skill set even though I know he could be grading at times both probably to his teammates and to the fan base yeah I and I feel like you want that type of guy that'll mix it up and he's very entertaining like after these games and press conferences and stuff along those lines so I definitely think he brings a spark to the team 
The one guy that I am concerned about, the two guys, obviously I'm concerned about Brogdon because he was bad again in this game tonight where he just goes one of five. He has two points, and this is the sixth man of the year. You're going to need more production from him offensively. But secondarily, I thought, and I know that they end up winning and Jalen ends up with a 17 points, but this is Jalen Brown, and he ends up with 17 points. And up until this point in the series, they had been outscored by 46 points when Jalen Brown was on the court. And I felt like when they were making that run there in the second quarter, Jalen Brown was on the bench. And it just feels like for whatever reason, he can't find his rhythm in this series whatsoever. And it feels like at times he's pressing. I thought the good thing for Jalen in this game tonight was that when they were getting out in transition, that's where he can be at his best and he has easy opportunities there. But I think the one thing I give the Heat a lot of credit for, even though if you look at the guys, they shouldn't be able to match up with Jalen Brown just because of his physical ability. And we've seen he's played in a million, po- what is it, 102 postseason games by this point. But they do a really good job aggravating him when he tries to dribble the basketball. And when Jalen's pressured like that, he tends to struggle. We saw it at times against the Warriors last year. And in fact, we saw it against this Heat team last year. So as excited as I am that they extended and I felt like they found some things, that would be my real big concern is Brogdon and Jalen didn't have it. Now, White had it. Smart found it in the second half. But those two guys not having it is definitely a reason to be concerned going forward. I wonder, too, like Brogdon, they were really careful with his minutes during the regular season. And they've been playing every other day for a while now, very with the exception of like that one two-day break they got. And Brogdon, we know, is a guy with injury history, was not playing north of 30 minutes per game this season. I wonder if right now he's feeling a little bit gassed because you can tell with those threes, everything is short. Yeah, and the Heat are going to put tougher minutes on a lot of these guys because they not only have guys that could fling it, but there are a lot of bigger-bodied, stout sort of guys that are going to really grind on you. Like Caleb Martin is a grinder. Like Kyle Lowry is probably going to put gray hairs on you after an entire playoff series. And you wonder that compounded with uh, some of the past injury issues with Brogdon. Maybe that's starting to add up. With Brown, I mean, he's he's prone to these sorts of games. And so on the one hand, you can maybe write this off or and maybe this entire series off as just something that he's prone to do. But I think you have to start wondering about two things. One is just the hand plus, I guess, now the elbow because the, the three ball is absolutely flat. I clocked him at three for 25 from three this entire series, which is just appalling for oh. a guy who's one of the best scorers in the league during the regular season. And so you have to wonder if something's happening there. And then the other part of this is just like what's going on in the locker room. Um, you hear all this stuff floating around about guys infighting and like maybe people are being tired with each other. And like I'm sure you could probably hear when the Celtics won this game just like the amount of stories and like podcast segments getting like tabled into the saved folder because everyone's just waiting to like unload on Brown and what going to happen to him (laughs) in the future and all this other stuff. And so you have to imagine a lot of this stuff is playing into it. Um, So I'm, I'm at the point where I'm kind of giving him the benefit of of the doubt because of all this, but they definitely need them if they're going to turn this thing fully around. Yeah. And the one thing I give Missoula credit for tonight compared to other games is with the exception of Tatum, like not starting the fourth quarter is he did play the hot hand. Like, if you look at this game tonight, Derek White played 27 minutes compared to Brogdon, who only played 17. We don't ordinarily see that from Missoula. Like, those numbers in terms of the minutes have been closer. And 
Grant Williams played more minutes than Al Horford in this game. He played 29 minutes and Al Horford played 25. And I felt like Al, he had a pretty good game. Like he found his shot. He finally hit a couple of threes, which is big to see in this series. But getting to your point about the locker room, I do feel like, okay, if they lose the series, this stuff is going to come back out again. And one of the things I felt that really rubbed guys the wrong way was, and look, Derek White was tremendous in this game. As I said, I thought he was huge, especially in the first half when they were struggling early on in the first quarter. I thought White played really well, but I don't think it sits well with the guys that Robert Williams was removed from the starting lineup. Because if you go back to that game six with Philadelphia and how much they were pumped, they were going back to the double bigs and Rob was back out there. And Tatum on numerous occasions has talked about Rob. He said earlier this season, I'm going to start, so I want Rob to start, right? I had Drew Hanlon on my podcast, Tatum's like personal coach and beats coach, as you know, as well. And he said how it's different from the five out lineup. It's easier to play with Rob because you have a lob threat and you got guys coming off the corners and closing down defensively. So that is one thing to monitor is just like this whole situation with Robert Williams. I feel like it's so different from last year where their identity was defense. Their identity was the two bigs. And with Missoula, it's so much different where he just always sides with five out. And I give him credit for playing Rob in more minutes tonight than I would have expected. But I do wonder, and I do want to monitor this going forward, is like the whole situation with Robert Williams and his minute total, because I don't think that Tatum likes not having Rob on the court. Yeah, on the one hand... I, I could definitely see the frustrations with it because it does feel like Rob affects the game in so many different ways for Mal, especially with Bam out there. Like you could, see, uh, I thought Horford had a pretty good game here, especially uh, providing the stretch that he did. But obviously, Bam is is such more of a physical threat, and you've seen him slowly but steadily become more of the lob threat that I think he was maybe perhaps in the regular season against different opponents. Like I, I feel like other opponents have done a good job of just parking a guy at the rim and daring him to like hit that little flip shot, but now he's He's getting into the lobs. You saw that in, early in the fourth quarter as well. Obviously, that that that's Rob's ballpark, right? That's why you have Rob is is in order to match up with him. But I guess like on one on the one hand, clearly Missoula wants to outshoot opponents. That's why Derek White has been such a critical part of this team this entire season. And so, uh, I, and then like that's how they won tonight. So on the one hand, I feel it's tough to criticize them in this specific game because the three ball like mattered so much in it. And I do wonder if like, that's what you've been doing all season, like to switch it up and, and try to identity shift in the middle of it. it. It might be tough and it also might be an even bigger indictment on Missoula than maybe some of the other stuff we've been talking about. Well, and I think that's the issue, right? Because they start out 21 and five, and that's how they got to 21 and five. At the time, they were on pace to be the best offense in the history of the NBA. They were shooting threes like crazy. And then eventually when Rob comes back, he's not starting and the team wasn't playing at the same level they were. Then he does go into the starting lineup and then he injures the hamstring barrier. And then when he comes back, he never gets back into the starting lineup again. So prior to the postseason, they never got back into a rhythm with Rob out there, which I thought was a mistake. And especially at the end of the year, might as well try out these different things to see what works. And they really never went back to the double big. So I feel like one of the issues that Joe had this season is he didn't experiment enough with some of the lineups. So, I mean, we'll we'll definitely have a longer conversation about this if the Celtics end up not coming back and beating the Heat. But one other note I wanted to get to is Butler in this game is 9 of 21. One of four from three, obviously doesn't want to take threes, but he did get to the free throw line 12 times. But 
This is one of the only games that I can remember in the series, really the only game in the series, where he wasn't as dominant in Game 3, but it didn't need to be because Kayla Martin was going nuts and Gabe Vincent was going nuts. But the, And the other thing is Bam only took seven shots. We saw last year in the series, there were four games where Bam took less than six shots. I don't know if this is they just didn't make a conscious effort to get the ball to Bam, but Jimmy Butler didn't look like he had that same burst that we saw earlier in the series, and it's Jimmy Butler. I'm never going to doubt Jimmy Butler. We've seen him go crazy in the series already but they did do a much better job defending him now the one issue is the following I don't know how many times we have to see Jimmy Butler jump stop in the lane he jumps off two feet and every time he's going to pump fake right so when he jump stops in the lane you cannot go for the pump fake every time they go for it and I know it's more it's easy for me to say right now like talking to you doing a podcast but I don't know do you think they found anything with Jimmy or he just had an off night and same thing with Bam did he just I mean, was he just not involved? Because we've seen sometimes with Bam, he just kind of floats. I think what you hear is uh, Scott Foster's music. They brought the equalizer here. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're going back to Boston. Um, yeah, th- I, th- I thought Jimmy had probably the quietest 29 points that he's probably ever had yeah. in his career. He just seemed muted the entire night. Uh, I don't know if that was like the Celtics defensive attention on it. Or as you're mentioning, just like these things just slowly wearing him over the time. Like the one image that sticks out to me in that game too, before Grant Williams started talking shit to him was him pretty much doubled over before halftime. Like Jimmy yeah. is, is going all out and they need him to, because he's been pretty much like the sun, the star, the moon and the sky for this team, pretty much this entire postseason, and everything else revolves around it. It's the flip side of that. Like just adding all those extra three point shooters. You need Jimmy to be everything that he's been, to be draw, getting to the line, to be scoring from mid-range, and then to be setting up all these other guys. And I think another big part of this game is just what's going to happen with Gabe Vinson. Yet another ankle is being yeah. rolled here. And like the, the Heat really are what? Like a, a six-man team at this point? Kevin Love comes and goes. Uh, Duncan comes and goes. Cody Zeller mostly just goes out there and plays four minutes to to spell Bam just because he needs to. And so you do wonder the longer these series go on, like what effect is that going to have on the Heat and Jimmy? Especially because like the previous two series, those weren't long series, right? And if anything, it just took a little extra to close out the Knicks. So if you want to be a Celtics optimist right now, you're saying to yourself like, huh, Maybe we just have the numbers and eventually that could maybe win the, the longer war here. Well, you, you may be right on the Vincent front because that did not look good. And I know Reggie Miller, one of the only good points he made in the whole entire game, <laughs> in the whole entire series is the adrenaline will be fine tonight, but it may kick in when he has to drive on the plane or go on the plane, I should say. But yeah, I mean, Reggie's been absolutely atrocious in this series. At one point tonight, when Tatum hit two threes in a row to begin the third quarter, he said it's reminiscent of game six against the Sixers when he didn't get going until there was three minutes left. It's like, Reggie, you know, we got a whole half left. This is nothing like the Philadelphia 76ers game. I mean, he's been atrocious. And I thought at one point we're all going to luck out because his mic went out. And I was thinking, okay, maybe TNT can't fix this for a little bit, but he's been really bad in this series. I mean, Bill pointed out that in game two, he thought it was stupid that Grant poked the bear in Butler. And then in game three, he was praising Grant for doing that. So he completely changed his opinion in two days in terms of what transpired with the Grant Williams thing. But if Gabe Vincent is hobbled, that's a massive issue for this 
Heat team. And then the other component to it is just getting back to the Butler front for a second here. You got to help me with this one, Vera. I don't understand how they give up the white switch so easily. Like Derek White is second team All-NBA defender, outstanding defender. But the problem is when he's going up against Jimmy Butler, he's given up 40 pounds. There's nothing really Derek White can do with them. And entering this game, Butler was 8 of 16, had been to the free throw line five times at 21 points with White as the primary defender. And I'm pulling my hair in the first quarter because they just, I don't know why they concede that so easily, especially with a guy in Butler who is not a great three-point shooter. And especially if it's beyond the three-point line, I don't understand why they don't just go underneath that screen more, meet him on the other side. If he hits a couple of threes, so be it. And for Missoula, who is the ultimate math guy, he references the math all the time. He wants to win on the margins, wants to win on the edges. I just can't comprehend why they keep doing that. Like, I don't understand how many more times they have to see Jimmy Butler get Derek White, get him near the cup, or get to the free throw line. I just don't understand why they keep doing it. Quite frankly, I believe Rob Williams does a better job. If you're going to, Rob Williams is better off, and I'm not saying you can like manufacture that, but he's actually been better switching on Jimmy than Derek White. It's no disrespect to Derek White. He's just, he's not big enough to deal with him. So it's, it's like going back to last year against Milwaukee where Jalen Brown they were trying to get the Jalen Brown matchup on him because Giannis had the advantage over Jalen just from a size perspective. And the Celtics did everything they could to avoid that last year. They did not want that to happen with Jalen Brown. And Jalen Brown, obviously much bigger, although Giannis obviously has a huge size advantage over him. But I don't understand why they keep doing that. Why do they just give up that matchup? Because on the other side of things, I don't see the Celtics, and I know they mismatch Hunt a lot less than Jimmy, but I don't see them constantly getting Duncan Robinson caught in action or Kevin Love caught in action. I just feel like this is avoidable stuff that the Celtics keep doing. I wonder if the flip side of that belief in, in like that strong, almost religious belief in the math is that you look at the larger sample and you say to yourself, well, Derek White has been one of the best defensive guards in the NBA. And he's the, he's, you know, he gets the one block from behind in this game. And you say to yourself like, Oh, well, you know, this is why we have it out there. You reference the, like he has the most blocks for a guard stat and you just, you trust in what you known the entire season. Like I do think the more and more this goes on, there is like a very clear through line between the bucks and the Celtics, just in like kind of this staunch, like rigidness that you wouldn't expect from a team like the Celtics, which is much more flow offense, much more like, like trusting to create things on the fly, the no timeouts sort of thing. But, but clearly (laughs) Missoula, like he wants to do things that he's comfortable with and not playing grant, perhaps overplaying white over Robert Williams. And I think that's where you see coaches get into trouble in the playoffs and where in particular you see Spo really shine, where he is just changing things up on the fly all the time to the point where he's like, you know what? We're going to throw a th- zone out there. Oh, you're going to take Tatum out for two minutes? Zone time. And it's just like he's constantly making you think and making the Celtics think has caused them so much trouble historically and th- making Joe Mazzola think has also caused a lot of trouble to the point where, did you see the tweet? I think it was from Abby Chin, uh, who basically suggested that during a timeout in which Joe called, which credit to him, that Smart was running the huddle, that he oh, sat yeah. in, in his chair and basically drew up the game plan. Like, that's not good, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that happened with Al Horford earlier in the series as well. Yeah, it was Abby Chen who tweeted that out. (laughs) I'm not surprised because it keeps happening throughout this series. And I I did find it interesting when they were showing on TNT's pregame show, Joe Mazzulla covering Jimmy or Jimmy Butler covering Joe Mazzulla. 
And I'm thinking to myself, this is sort of the inexperience of Joe Mazzulla where he was old enough or he's young enough, I should say, to have played against Jimmy Butler. Al Horford is two years older than Joe Mazzulla. And obviously the Celtics were put in a real tough predicament with everything that sort of transpired. So before I let you go, Vera, just your take on the Missoula situation going forward, because there's a lot of guys with really nice resumes that are out there in terms of head coaching candidates. Do you think now some of these guys are going to think to themselves, say, hold on, before I commit to one of these jobs, because this is obviously an historic organization, but more importantly than that, you got a guy in Jason Tatum that's been a first-team All-NBA guy two years in a row. And even if I don't think he's in the upper echelon of NBA stars, I think there are some limitations there. He's technically in what is 24 year old season. So there's room for him to grow when it comes to that. I keep harping on. I'd like him to be better in terms of the twos between the rim and the three point line. He's just like completely aborted that part of his game, which sort of aggravates me. But do you think some of these coaches are going to be looking at the Celtics thing now and think, hey, man, let me hold on because it's still it's only three one like Joe Mazzulla's job is not safe. I don't think it's safe at this particular point in time. Maybe they think it is. But if they flame out the way that the first three games of this series went, I wouldn't be surprised if they moved on from Joe. Yeah, I think the one silver lining of losing this series and losing it sooner than later would be getting in the mix for some of these bigger name coaches because I feel like every couple hours and every like game that I'm watching, there's a new update about like this fresh round uh, of coaching interviews. We got one tonight. I think it was maybe the Suns. And I, I think it, it is an important factor because if those guys aren't out there, if a Nick Nurse isn't there, like a mad scientist that maybe play with all these different wing options that he has out there or someone who is his widely respected as a Monty Williams, then like maybe you are more inclined to keep Joe and maybe just set like handcuff him with a more veteran guy on the bench and just say like, well, he was thrust into a poor situation. Why not? Why don't we figure this out? Because the Celtics job is absolutely plumb. I guess like you might worry about the Jalen situation long term, although like I think you could rationalize that maybe the coach could solve that, especially considering the sort of relationship Jalen had with Udoka to the point where I wonder if a lot of the grumbling about Udoka not being there might be coming from Jalen. But the problem is like pretty much every good job is open. Like the Bucks job with with Giannis and all of these options, like uh, yeah. th- that's an awesome job. The Suns job is is another awesome job. Like if you want to be in a rebuilding situation with a with a, a really good foundation in, in like front office, like the Raptors job is even a good job. And so there's a lot of competition out there. Um, and so I I do think they need to get into the fray if they do want to go that route. To to answer your your question after this long winded explanation, I definitely think that they probably need some sort of fill for the power vacuum, the leadership vacuum, the organizational vacuum that they just haven't had since Udoka left. And like, I'm a strong believer in the fact that like your, your, your team kind of personality flows down from your star player. And I feel like Tatum is, is probably not going to be that guy. He's probably not going to be your emotional leader. You want him to be your best player and someone else to be your most important player. And if you're able to subsidize that with the coach, with an Adoka type, with a Monty Williams type, I would probably lean that way. How do you feel about it? Yeah, no, that's a great point because first of all, I love the point on Tatum. Let me get to that point first because I almost feel like it's Kawhi Leonard when he goes to the Raptors, right? Where Kyle Lowry is the the leader of the team. You have this 
coach that's trying out all this stuff in Nick Nurse, but Kyle Lowry's the guy. And you could have all this rest stuff with Kawhi because he's basically just a hired gun and you just want him to do his job. And Tatum's never been that sort of outspoken leader. Like behind closed doors, I'm sure he talks to guys and all that, but he's never going to be that LeBron type leader, that rah-rah type guy, right? So I do feel like that's what was so good about having Ime. Ime was the spokesperson for the team last year where Ime would call everybody out. He's almost the opposite of Joe Mazzulla where after the game three loss, Joe's putting it all on him. Ime would have gone up there and be like, well, Tatum fucking sucked tonight. Jalen played like <laughs> shit. Like he wouldn't care, right? So I do think that was why that fit. That was a perfect fit. But your original point, having that veteran assistant, because if you are going to go with Joe Mazzulla again next year, it does make sense to have that guy. And that's the one piece I think that was really missing this year. And even if you go back to... Think about the whole situation, right? When the Ime thing happens, and obviously everything's unfortunate about that situation, but also Will Hardy had already left for Utah. And Will Hardy would obviously be the coach of this team if this situation had happened before the head coaching search this offseason, right? Will Hardy was basically the right-hand man for Ime last year. So Whatever it is in terms of if it is Joe that's back as the head coach, I do think that's the most important thing is there's got to be and just pay that guy a shit ton of money because clearly what we've seen this year, I just don't feel like there's enough veteran leadership on the coaching staff, right, to tell Joe Mazzulla like what's going wrong. And one of the comparisons I made, not that this is a good thing long term, but remember when Steve Nash first got the job, he had an offensive coordinator in Mike D'Antoni and he had a defensive coordinator in Ime Adoka. And that was the one good year they had together before they had all those injuries against the Bucs. And if it isn't for Kevin Durant's foot, maybe they do advance to the conference finals. But in some way, shape or form, and look, they could not predict that Damon Stoudemire was going to get offered the Georgia Tech job in the middle of the season. He was obviously important to them. I know a lot of people reference him as like the Marcus Smart whisperer. So that obviously hurt them. But that would be if you're keeping Joe, that's Brad's number one priority. He has to get our veteran coach, whether it's I know Bill had mentioned before this season in Frank Vogel, but if it's one of these guys that misses out and they do want to be an assistant coach, if they rather do that than go into broadcasting or whatever, that should be their number one priority if they're going to keep Joe Mazzulla around. Yeah, I do wonder if a win like tonight and maybe like one more before they close out this series, if they don't just rally back entirely and get the, get the pink Red Sox hats out there. Um, I do wonder if that has a trickle down effect where the burn from the the defeat isn't as strong as it would be if it was a 4-0. Like you see what's happening with LeBron in Los Angeles flirting with retiring, I guess we'll we'll say kindly. I do wonder if more extreme outcomes produce more extreme behavior as a result of it and maybe people are more calling for Joe's head than they are now where you have a softer landing and so maybe he bought himself a, a stay of execution in, in addition to just prolonging the series here I think they should hire Perk as an assistant if his <laughs> if his coaching is as good as his takes he'd be he'd be an excellent fit here I mean geez Perk's over the top man he wants yeah. he He's he's had some of the worst basketball takes I've ever heard, and he just he keeps digging himself bigger and bigger holes here. But yeah, we'll see what's going forward. So hey, before I know he said before I let you go, but before I let you go, you think they win Game Five? I know it's at the Garden, which probably isn't the best thing in the world, but do you think they win Game Five? I'm gonna say no, Ugh. if only <laughs> because uh, I, I the the memories of the first three games are very like 
like stuck in my mind right now. But listen, I think they have something here. And I think if you're a Celtics fan, you have to be more emboldened than you have been in what, like a week plus at this point. Yeah, and that's a, such the aggravating part. Like they easily should have taken one of the first two games, right? And if you had just taken one of the first two games, it's 2-2, it's heading back to Boston. You feel great about it. Just digging yourself this hole is just, oh, that's the aggravating part. All right, that is Justin Verrier from the Ringer NBA show. Group chat, of course. Very, thanks so much for the time tonight. Thanks for staying up late with us, man. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Justin Verrier. And make sure to check out his pod as well. Group chat with Waz and Rob Mahoney. I'm sure they'll have a ton of stuff on the seas as well coming up. And then, of course, make sure to listen to Bill's pod, as he always do as well, because I'm sure he'll have a big breakdown of this game. Looking forward to what's coming up in Game 5 as well. Oh, by the way, interesting note from Chris Forsberg from NBC Sports Boston. Apparently, the Celtics, they had an outing at Top Golf this afternoon prior to the game tonight. So maybe that's the recipe. Top Golf, play a little golf, relax a little bit. We know Tatum likes golf. He enjoys golfing. So maybe that's the key. Little Top Golf before the game, sort of take the stress off a little bit. And interesting, Tim Bontemps, who we had on the pod to preview the series, he was doing a bunch of hits on SportsCenter today, and I saw him, and he was basically saying this team was incredibly loose. Like, you would not see a team, you would not know that they were down 3 nothing by the way they were acting. So hopefully, look, maybe some of the pressure is off the Celtics. Maybe they feel better about the situation now, one game at a time. I did like seeing the Kevin Millar clips all over the internet today where Kevin Millar says, don't let us win tonight, because then we got Petey, then we got Shill, and who knows what could happen in a game seven. So I enjoyed seeing those clips sort of reliving some of the 2004 Red Sox. But here we are. You needed the Celtics to respond. Jason Tatum carried this team. He was tremendous in this game. And here we are. 3-1. Got an opportunity at the Garden to force a game six coming up on Thursday night. And good thing they didn't get swept. That would have made it very difficult to. And look, even if they lose the series, it's going to suck because you're going to look back at games one and games two and say, hey, those are really winnable games. And they Blue game two and game one, the whole Pritchard situation we were talking about earlier with Verrier. Why didn't you go with Grant Williams? So there's certainly going to be things we point to if the Celtics don't win the series that aggravated us, but you couldn't get swept. That would be unbecoming of a team that made it to the NBA Finals last year. All right, let's get to a couple of calls. That number 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. All right, who's up first? Brian is David from Kentucky. Man, Celtics uh, did a win here in in Game Four of the Eastern Conference Finals. Jason Tatum played well. Uh, Jalen, for most of the game, was still pretty bad. Um, I don't understand. Bob not starting. Still, there are pieces of this that that concern me. Uh, but nice to not be swept because it makes we're, means we're better than the Lakers. Um, but to my point, uh, here's here's the question: Is there a chance that? Um, the, re- the regression to the mean is beginning to happen for the Miami shooters. Game three, throw that out. That one was so horrible by the seas. But consider that one and two, there were close moments and that Miami's shot making was better. Is this a, a start of Miami shooters, the Martins and the Gabe, uh, the, the Vincents and the, and the Struces re- returning to the mean in terms of shooting production? If so, do we even have a chance? Um, but, Good to have another night of basketball. Uh, thanks for all, for everything. Nice to have a positive call for, for the first time in a while. And uh, love the show as always. Thanks. All right, great stuff, David. The three-point shooting, we mentioned this briefly with Verrier, but the numbers are clearly in the Celtics' advantage tonight when they hit 18 and the Heat only hit eight threes in this game. 
And I do wonder, you look at some of the role players for the Celtics that really started to get going in this one. Horford hit three threes, Smart hit three, Derek White hit three, and Grant, as we alluded to, hit the four off the bench, and Tatum hit four. And you look at these role players in this game for the Miami Heat, Vincent's one of four, and now he's dealing with an ankle injury, as we mentioned. Struess was one of five. Duncan Robinson was 0 of four, and Caleb Martin was 2 of five. So Caleb Martin's the only guy that shot the ball well from the outside for the Heat, and that had been sort of the biggest difference in this series so far. It's just the fact that if you look at the open threes, the Heat have been hitting their open threes, and the Celtics have not been able to hit anything from deep. If you just look at the wide open threes entering this game, and I gave you the totality of the numbers with Varier in terms of the Celtics versus the Heat, but think about this. On open threes, which means the closest defender is at least six feet away, up until this game tonight, Martin was 6 of 14, Robinson was 4 of 5, Vincent was 2 of 5, Lowry was 3 of 4, Struess was 2 of 3, Love was 2 of 2, and Butler was 1 of 1. You look at that on the Celtics side, the only guy that was hitting his open threes was Derek White. He was 6 of 9, Brogdon was 1 of 7, Brogdon's still an issue, Al was 1 of 7, and Al hit three threes tonight. Smart was 2 of 5, which is fine, but he wasn't hitting any other threes. Jalen was 0 of 3, and Grant was 1 of 3. And if you look at this game tonight, the Celtics are doing a much better job at generating better looks in terms of the corner threes, and they were knocking threes down. So you do feel like, based on how it had transpired through the first couple of games of the series, where the Heat were hitting everything, and the Celtics couldn't hit shit from three, and the Celtics have been one of the better three-point shooting teams all season long, you would expect this to turn around at some point. So maybe this is it. Maybe tonight was the start of something for the Celtics. All right, who's up next? Joe from West Virginia. Mr. Brian Barrett, I got to give it up to you. You kept a glimmer of hope for the seas where I kind of, be honest with you, I had the broom out. I figured it was all over for them. But I'll tell you what a terrific game tonight. Although, And I don't, by the way, I don't know what game Reggie Miller was watching. I'll tell you, he was blowing some calls left and right. But aside from the first <laughs> quarter, when the Celtics turned the ball over, I think it was six times, they cut back on the turnovers, and that created a winning formula. Um, two things that I, I took from the game. One, I thought Grant Williams, um, they have to use him more. You've been calling for that anyhow. And then secondly, when Robert Williams is down in the paint, down low, with playing D against Jimmy Butler or Bam Adebayo, let him do it. He can handle it by himself. You don't need to start double teaming and then get burnt by a three-point shot. So leave Robert Williams a third alone because Bam and Jimmy, um, they're not going to push it too hard against Robert Williams. They're, they're looking to pass it out to somebody else. Um, hey, uh, Brian, i got to ask you one question I want to, to post here. Okay, as far as like Boston Celtics folklore, Bill Russell was kind of like that once-in-a-lifetime player for a franchise. Larry Bird was like a generational-type player in the franchise. And Dave Collins was that kind of guy, like maybe come along once in a decade for a franchise. I'll tell you, Jason Tatum, come fourth quarter, when it was 88 to 83, made some huge clutch baskets down the stretch to make the difference in the ball game to push it now to a game five in Boston. I don't want to overdo it with Jason Tatum, but he is a tremendous special player. He just is. And we'll see how it goes from here. <laughs> I'll tell you, Brian, I love when you put the metric hat on. It's like really entertaining and informative. You do it as well as anybody in the Boston area, and as far as I'm concerned, you do it as well as anybody nationally. So let's just uh, sit back and see what happens. As Yogi Berra said, it's not over till it's over. So let's go see. Thanks, Brian. All right, I appreciate it as always, Joe. Great call. 
Yeah, when you talk about the greatest Celtics of all time, obviously Bill Russell's top of the list, and then you think of Larry Bird. Remember, Larry Bird is the first or the last guy to win three consecutive MVPs. And that was one of the big critiques of, hey, can you really give it a Jokic? Can he win three years in a row? Because Larry Bird is this immortal figure in the history of basketball. And now I bet there are MVP voters out there that regret voting for Joel Embiid. And I get it's a regular season award, but Nikola Jokic right now is clearly the best player in the NBA. But just that's why you have this unbelievable thing with Larry Bird that this guy won three consecutive MVPs. That is very difficult to do. And during that stretch, of course, he won two NBA championships as well, 84 in 86, had the three championships in totality. But with Tatum, definitely not ready to put him in that type of category right now. But I will say this. One of the real positive things about Jason Tatum is he does show up when this team's back is up against the wall. We can't really deny that. And as many times as you look at him in a postseason run and he struggles in certain games, you look at some of these ones that he has where Hey, season's on the line. And look, he's still going to win three more games to win the series against the Miami Heat. But this was a big performance by Jason Tatum where he carried the team and he did everything. He was the guy handling the ball. He was the guy dishing out the seven assists. And one of the things I'll always say about Tatum, he is a phenomenal rebounder and he grabbed 11 rebounds tonight. So I really felt this is a really great performance from Tatum considering what was on the line. He shows up when his back's against the wall. You think about game seven, the 51, you think about the 46 against the Milwaukee Bucks. I give him a lot of credit for that. He is not scared of the moment. Sometimes you could say he doesn't show up, but he's not scared of the moment, which is definitely important for your star player. Now, Joe also mentioned Robert Williams. I felt he had some really impressive defensive stands in this game tonight. And if you think about early on in this game, it's 22 to 18, and he stoned Jimmy Butler. This is Jimmy Butler, who has been outside of Nikola Jokic, the best player of the postseason. He stoned Jimmy Butler, a guy that is giving the Celtics guards all kinds of trouble. Robert Williams stoned that guy. And I'm not saying I love that matchup, but he stoned Jimmy Butler. Then he blocked Jimmy Butler on a help possession when it was 24 to 18. And then the one thing that he really gives you is that athleticism on the offensive end. Where he cuts, they find him for a wide open dunk, 26 to 20. He gets to the line in transition. Now he missed one of the two free throws, but he ran the court. He runs right to the basket. That's what I love about him. He's a rim runner. He's running to the basket. They find him. He gets to the free throw line. Then again, he ran down the court. He got a dunk at the rim, 50 to 46. And then he got a switch where Gabe Vincent was on him. I give Jalen Brown credit. One of the rare passes you'll see from Jalen Brown that was on target He just stood right in front of Gabe Vincent, kind of almost like boxed him out, got into the post, got himself an easy dunk, and then he got an offensive rebound, and this is something the Celtics, they took advantage of it in game three, even though they got killed, but we saw them rebounding the basketball on the offensive side of the floor a lot better, gets an offensive rebound, and it leads to Tatum free throws to make it 54-50 at that particular point in time, and then late in the game again, running the floor, he got a transition dunk to make it 102-86. So I love what Robert Williams is bringing to this series, even if they're not going to start him going forward. The good sign in terms of not starting Robert Williams, or I should say the good thing out of it tonight, was you got really good minutes from Derek White. Derek White was phenomenal, and it's kind of weird where it's been like sort of a seesaw with these guards, right? Where at times, Malcolm Brogdon was the best guard in the postseason for the Celtics. It really started out White games one and two against Atlanta was their best guard. Then Brogdon took over. Then Smart sort of had his moments. And now it's back to where we were throughout the regular season 
where Derek White right now is their most dependable guard. And Verrier mentioned the block that he had on Duncan Robinson. That was just ridiculous. In transition, coming back, blocks him from behind, which leads to a dunk on the other end. So I do like that, that Derek White has his confidence back. And he's one of the rare Celtics in this series that is actually shooting the ball well, which, of course, you love to see. All right, remember, if you want to get a voicemail in, you can. 617-396-7172. So Thursday night... Right after the game, or if it's sort of a blowout and it feels comfortable, make sure to get your voicemails in at 617-396-7172 because, of course, we'll be recording after that game on Thursday night. You can also email us to it off the pike at gmail.com. All right, one thing I wanted to get to, and I'll get to some more C's in a second here, is we gave you a winner. The same game parlay, we gave you a winner for plus 324. We tweeted it out. It was on the Ringer account, and... Thanks to our friends at FanDuel, we hit plus 324 tonight. Celtics on the money line, bam. Tatum, 25 points, bam. Tatum, two made threes, bam. Tatum, four assists, bam. And White, two made threes. So there we go. The game one, same game parlay, did not go our way. The game four, same game parlay, certainly did. So not only was it a win, For the Celtics, it was a win for the the off-the-pike community. If you guys followed up with the bet that we had on FanDuel, we apologize for the game one loss, but guess what we did? We bounced back. That's what we did. Like, the Celtics bounced back. We bounced back in a major way. We are back on track, baby. Now I'm feeling good about a game five, same game parlay. I got to think about that one, but I'm feeling good about a same game parlay on game five. I feel like, like the Celtics, I've built up some momentum. I have built up some momentum. Now, I'm not going to penalize myself like Joe Missoula almost did in this game tonight. I know I mentioned this with Verrier, but man, enough with Tatum sitting to start these fourth quarters. This is a do-or-die scenario. LeBron James is playing almost 48 minutes. The guy is 38 years of age. Tatum is 25 years of age. This guy is young. He can go the distance. Let him play the entire second half. This is what I don't understand about Missoula, okay? During the regular season, think about this. On two separate occasions, Jason Tatum... Played the entire second half and overtime. In fact, he played the entire second quarter in the entire second half and the entire overtime against the Warriors and the Lakers. If you don't believe me, look it up. It happened this year. And now all of a sudden in the playoffs, he won't do it. you got to be kidding me. All right, coming up next, I want to get back into some Celtics and an interesting note for a former Patriots quarterback. We'll do that next. Welcome back into Off the Pike. All right, interesting dynamic here with Tatum and Jalen Brown in this game because through the first three games of the series, Jason Tatum had 11 assists and 12 turnovers. Jalen had 10 assists and 11 turnovers. So you do the math on that. Your two best players had 21 assists and 23 turnovers, which have been an issue last year in the postseason, and it was bad in this one. Now, or bad in this series up until this game four. Now, Tatum had the three turnovers early in the first eight minutes. Then he sort of cleaned it up. He does end up with five, but Jalen, four assists and one turnover, which that's amazing for Jalen Brown. This is basically a one assist to one turnover guy. So the fact that he only had one turnover in this game and he had the four assists major. So the Celtics, their two best players, 11 assists and six turnovers. So you're looking at a plus five when it comes to that, when they had been a minus two throughout the first three games of the series. That's major. And Tatum, I just felt like it was sloppy early in this game. With Jalen Brown, they tend to be bad reads and just inexplicable passes. Or the other component to it with Jalen is he'll just dribble the ball off his foot, which is something that you can't have happen. And that happens continually throughout these playoff runs for Jalen Brown. So that's the good news, 11-6. The two big things to me, besides the outstanding performance from Tatum, the two big things for me, 
Numbers-wise, the three-point advantage that the Celtics had in this game when the Heat had it throughout the first three games of the series and the lack of Jalen Brown turning the basketball over. Now, Tatum turned it over a little bit, as we alluded to, but that's major. They have got to be in the positive when it comes to that because it's hurting this team way too much. All right, I did want to get to this. We referenced this briefly with very, or at least alluded to it, but it was interesting to me that prior to the Denver Nuggets-Lakers game where, and as David said earlier on one of the voicemails, the Lakers lost, they got swept, the Celtics didn't, okay? So a minor win for the Celtics community, that the Lakers got swept. You hate to see it, right? You just, I mean, it's tough. You you don't like to see LeBron and the Lakers lose, right? It's really difficult to see. But anyway, so interesting quote here from Woj, where he's doing sort of the pregame thing on ESPN. And he says, this team, this locker room, they never got over Ime Udoka's dismissal as a head coach. These players did not accept the organization's reason for doing it. They thought it was a wild overreaction. And I just feel like, Going back to if you connect the dots from the original reporting, remember, Woj and Ime are repped by the same agency, and the original tweet that Woj had, Boston Celtics coach Ime Adoka is facing possible disciplinary action, including significant suspension for an unspecified violation of organizational guidelines. And remember, he tweeted that late at night. You're like, what the hell does that even mean, right? And then he tweets, Ime Adoka's job isn't believed to be in jeopardy, but a suspension is looming. And a final determination on that length could come as soon as Thursday. So this was all kind of weird at the beginning when we got this reporting from Woj. And then Shams had reported that Ime had an improper, intimate, and consensual relationship with a female member of the team staff. Also reported that sources said that a woman recently had accused Yudoka of making unwanted comments towards her, leading to the team to launch a set of internal interviews. So... The Shams report gave us more information on what sort of happened with the Ime situation, even though the Celtics, for legal reasons, they can't put out what happened, right? So what happened is it felt like Woj's camp, or I should say Ime's camp, leaked this out to Woj's camp so Woj's camp could put this out there, and Woj doesn't give you any details, so people are just coming up with takes and hot takes, where I said at the time it's irresponsible to have this huge hot take on this situation. You shouldn't have a hot take on this situation. That shouldn't be a hot take scenario sort of thing, right? So you had all these people talking about something. They didn't even know what happened. You're watching shows on TV and they're talking about this situation. They don't have any details on it, right? So I did feel like the reporting where it was so vague at the beginning was unfair to the Celtics organization, right? So now what has happened is we're circling back to the Celtics being down three games to nothing at the time in the conference finals And Woj is putting this back out there. Now, we can criticize Joe Mazzulla, and I have on numerous occasions for things that I didn't agree with in terms of the coaching. I did it tonight about some of the things I didn't like in terms of sitting Tatum to begin the fourth. And when you know there's a zone not having smart out there if Tatum's going to be on the bench to begin with. And I didn't like Tatum being on the bench in that particular point in time. Anyway, I've criticized him for lineup decisions. I've criticized him throughout the postseason for what he's done on the court. But to think that now, all of a sudden... The Ime situation is costing them to be down three games to nothing. If you want to say like some of the issues the Celtics have had have been because of the coach, right? If you want to say, hey, the defense isn't as good because of the coach and the schemes, or he's blown games late because of lack of time, whatever your opinion is on Joe Mazzulla, that's fine. But I just thought it was, this is the pregame show of the Western Conference Finals between the Lakers and the Denver Nuggets, and you're bringing up the Ime Udoka situation, Right. Because the Celtics are down three games to none, and now you bring this situation back up to me, I just thought that was an unfair thing to reference at that particular point in time to say, hey, this is 
basically what you're indicating there is, hey, this is the problem, is that Ime's not in the locker room anymore. And as I alluded to with Verrier, I think that Jason Tatum was upset that you didn't have Robert Williams in the starting lineup to begin three game three. I thought he was out of his I thought he was in a funk to start that game. And I really believe that part of that situation was because of Robert Williams being out of the lineup to at least start the game. Remember, and Tatum earlier this season had said whether he starts or comes off the bench, I just want him out there. So, you know, I'm going to start. So I would like Rob to start. But, you know, whatever's best for the team, he'll do that. And, you know, as much as I can be on the court with him as possible, you know, I think he makes us better. So I felt that it was the wrong decision not to start Robert Williams in game three of the series. But I'm not going to come back and say, hey, yeah, or I'm not going to look at this and say, yeah, well, Woj is right. This is because Ime is not the coach of the team. If you want to say Ime would be a better coach for the Celtics than Joe Mazzulla, totally a fair take to have. But to bring this up to say that this is the reason that the Celtics are down 3 nothing, no, that, that's horse shit. The reason the Celtics are down, they won their first two series, right? They had the second best record in the Eastern Conference. They won 57 games. The reason they're down 3 nothing, yeah, Joe Mazzulla is part of the issue in terms of some of the stuff, but... They weren't hitting threes. Tatum was bad in game three. Jalen has been bad the entire series. Brogdon has been bad the entire series. Brogdon never even played for Ime. So to put that all on the Ime situation, that to me is just completely over the top. And I thought that that's something you shouldn't be talking about on a pregame show for the Nuggets and the Lakers as if this is the issue. If you want to tell us about some new locker room issue that they have, fine. But bringing that up to me, I just thought that was, I thought that was a little ridiculous, quite frankly. All right. I did want to get to this though. And I referenced with Verrier, they got better threes. And part of it is, if you go back to game one, the Celtics, now they fell apart in the second half, but they had 49 points on 53 drives. Tatum, 23 points on 16 drives. Game two, just 22 points on 32 drives. And in game three, 23 points on 41 drives. So the Thunder, they averaged 35.7 points per game off of drives this year. This is first in the NBA. The Celtics had 49 in game one. And if you look at game two and game three, 22 and 23, only two teams average fewer than 23 points per game off of drives this season. So the Celtics went from way high up on that list to way down in games two and games three. And I do feel like this led to a lack of good threes. I referenced those wide open threes, but a lot of them are not in rhythm, right? Even if you have an open three, sometimes it's not in rhythm. And I think what we saw with the Celtics offense tonight not what I think. What I saw in the Celtics offense tonight is besides that one stretch at the end of the first quarter there, the ball movement was crisper. The driving, they were driving with purpose. And look, these numbers in terms of the drives, the tracking data hasn't finalized from tonight's game, obviously, yet. But what I felt like, they generated better shots because there was an aggression. And that's what we've seen with the Heat. The Heat have been great at penetrating, getting into the lane, and finding open shooters, right? And we finally saw that from the Celtics in this game four. They were driving hard. They were finding open shooters. A lot of hockey assists in this game, right? Where you think about it, Jason Tatum, because he started to hit some shots, he would get doubled. He finds Marcus Smart. Smart finds Grant Williams. Or he finds Jalen. Jalen finds Marcus Smart. The ball was moving around, which we saw at times for the Celtics this season. But when the Celtics offense struggles, it's not just that they're missing threes. It's that it's, okay, Smart brings the ball up to court or White brings the ball up to court. Whoever brings the ball up to court, it's one pass to the wing and Al's taking a three or Jalen's taking a three. That's not good offense. Good offense is making the defense work, right? Where, hey, kick it over to the wing, kick it back to the corner, back to the wing. I'm going to drive here. The defense is going to collapse. That's when you want the threes in rhythm threes. So I understand I referenced these wide open threes, 
the wide open threes aren't always great, right? It'd be great if it's just Steph Curry, right? Or it's great if it's Jason Tatum, but he's not going to get a lot of wide open threes, right? But sometimes when you get those wide open threes, they're not in rhythm. That's why you see a lot of bricks with that. So what you want to see is getting into the paint, those paint touches and kicking it out. It just makes for better shots. So, and I will say this, one last Celtics note. And I may feel like an idiot on Thursday when we come back and do the next pod. I think it's going seven now. I really do. After everything that has sort of transpired at the Garden, the under 500 record, or I should say below 500 record at the Garden, that place is going to be jumping on Thursday. I feel like the Celtics are going to win that game. And then I think they go back and they win game six. And who the fuck knows what happens in a game seven. But I do hope to how we started this pod. We see some of those Red Sox there, right? We see the, whether it's the Kevin Millars of the world, Pedro being there would be cool if you get Ortiz in the building, sort of. And I love when the sports teams sort of support each other around here. Now, obviously, the Red Sox are not going to be able to get there like the team itself, which I'm sure the Red Sox would like to. They actually have an off day on Thursday. But then they head to, who do they play over the weekend? Because they finish off this Anaheim series on Wednesday night. And of course, they lost tonight, so... Hopefully they don't get swept in this series, but on Friday, yeah, it's in Arizona. So they'll be in Arizona. Unfortunately, they're not going to be able to go back to Boston, but I do like when the other teams like kind of, I like when the Patriots are there. So I'm sure like Edelman will be there. Maybe Bill will be there as well. But overall, I would just like to see some of the old Red Sox there from 04. I think that would be an incredible moment. I think that would be awesome. So I think this is going seven. I do. And if they lose, I'm going to be so mad because I just predicted they're going seven. All right. One more note that I wanted to leave on. Tom Brady has now become part of the ownership group with the Raiders, and I get it's going to be a really small stake, but Mark Davis says we're excited for Tom to join the Raiders, and it's exciting because he'll just be the third player in the National Football League to become an owner. So congratulations to Tom. We don't know exactly what his role is going to be. 10 years and $375 million waiting from Fox, although I believe that Greg Olson just won And Emmy, I don't believe that Tom's ever going to do that job. Greg Olson is really good at that job. I don't think that Tom is the type of guy that's going to want to get out there and criticize players. I just don't see that happening for Tom. So maybe this is a way for him to sort of be literally invested in a football team. But the only thing that sort of irritates me about this, and look, Tom, do whatever the fuck you want if you're Tom Brady. It just, from a Patriots fan perspective, and look, the way that it ended here, obviously it wasn't great, but we've seen sort of, The Bill and Tom relationship, it's better now, post-career for Tom. Bill went on Tom's podcast to praise Tom, and Tom praised Bill, and all this different type of stuff, and Tom's going to get honored before the Eagles game, which is going to be awesome. Brady back at Gillette will be fantastic to see all that and watch Tom. It's going to be awesome. But now it's sort of, he's going to be at a lot of Raiders games. He's part of the Raiders ownership group, even if it's a very small stake. And I was hoping he'd be more involved with the Patriots. And maybe that was just wishful thinking for me. But I hate the fact that Tom Brady is going to be associated with the Raiders going forward. And I understand there's a lot of Patriots connections there, too. Josh McDaniels is the coach. His old backup, Jimmy Garoppolo, is now the quarterback. You got Chandler Jones there, who, of course, was part of the first Super Bowl in the second dynasty, the 14th Super Bowl. He's part of that team. Jacoby Myers just went there. So you get a lot of former Patriots there. Dave Ziegler running the front office there. So there's going to be a lot of connections for Brady. But I just, I can't, I understand the Tampa thing. He went there, he won a Super Bowl. I can't see him wearing another team. I don't want to see him wearing Raiders gear ever. I just cannot stomach the fact that he'd be wearing 
Raiders gear. But anyway, good for Tom. He's going to get a tiny percentage in that. And I know he already bought into the Aces who won the WNBA championship last year. But the one person I think that this is really going to aggravate is Robert Kraft. <laughs> because Kraft is going to be so pumped that Tom's coming back and he's honored. And I'm sure Kraft is pumped that he doesn't have to see Tom play for another football team anymore. But now he's with another ownership group, which just has to completely kill Kraft. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. We will be back Thursday, and we can guarantee we're going to be talking at least about one more Celtics game this season because, of course, Game 5 back at the Garden on Thursday night. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll talk in a couple of days.